you know, success is all about leadership and putting structures in place and putting ops in place so that you can do something effectively and make customers happy day in and day out. This is Jeff Standridge, and this is the Innovation Junkies podcast. If you want to drastically improve your business, learn proven growth strategies, and generate sustained results for your organization, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Innovation Junkies podcast. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Innovation Junkies podcast. I'm Jeff Standridge. And this is Jeff Amarine. Glad to be back for another episode. Who, who do we have on today, Jeff? Well, uh, interesting you should ask, uh, Jeff. We've got Scott Kirshner. Scott is the CEO and co-founder of Innovation Leader, uh, which is a Boston-based media and events company that's focused on helping innovators and large organizations deliver results. Uh, he's been a uh, spent two decades as a business journalist and contributing editor for the Boston Globe, Wired Magazine, Fast Company, uh, Variety, the New York Times, Business Week, and a, and a number of other publications. Uh, with that, um, Scott, great to have you with us today. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. No, it's it's uh, it's our pleasure, and and we appreciate you for for joining us all the way from Boston. Doesn't take any travel nowadays through the magic of digital technology. That's right. That's right. It's video chat has changed the world, hasn't it? It really has, particularly in the last two years. But speaking of that, you know, kind of getting into the swing of some things we might talk about during the podcast, as you reflect back on some of the giants of the past, innovators and inventors, who would, in, in your case, who would your favorite innovator from the past be? Well, one that I don't know, uh, I don't know if there's a question you guys always ask on the podcast or, or First time, you know, actually. this yeah. is new to me, but one person that I, you know, that I really like to reference just because I think everybody can relate to the company is Walt Disney. And, you know, I grew up in Florida, you know, uh, in the decade or two after uh, you know, Walt Disney World was open in Florida. And so that was sort of the family vacation destination for a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of family road trips. And, you know, what I think is interesting about Walt Disney is, is that, you know, when you look at anybody in the movie and entertainment industry, he really was always thinking about what was the next wave? What was the next technology that was going to come and how could he take advantage of it? And everybody always thinks about, oh, he invented the theme park and that's what's so innovative about him. But uh, if you ever read any of the Disney biographies or you go in San Francisco, there's a really great Disney family museum that has a lot of artifacts um, from the growth of the company. He was also somebody who was very interested in, you know, um, making the first some of the first sound cartoons, making the, some of the first color cartoons um, using the Technicolor process that was initially invented here in Boston. Uh, and then also looking at television as a distribution channel. And so I think he's an interesting person who, you know, was a founder of a company, but created this company that has continually looked at what is the next wave, how are theme parks and television and streaming and, uh, you know, digital media all going to evolve. And, you know, today, uh, if you even if you're not back to traveling to theme parks, you may get Disney content on something mm -hmm. like Disney Plus, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is like just their latest 
wave of innovation. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. I mean, it's Walt Disney definitely had impacts on nearly every aspect of our lives. You think about it, how how we consume information, how we feel about animated films, et cetera. Jeff, what about you? Yeah, you know, and uh, yeah, I have one before that, but I, I remember on Sunday evenings as a child watching The Wonderful World of Disney, oh, yeah. right? Uh, all those shows yeah. that they had on there. So I, I have to go back in the spirit of, you know, we, we've talked a lot on here about testing and learning and reiterating and, and uh, pivoting and what have you. I go back to Thomas Edison. You know, uh, folklore says that he failed several thousand times at uh, his invention of the incandescent light bulb. And somebody said, how can you fail, you know, X thousands of times and still keep going? He said, oh, I didn't fail that many times. I now know X thousands of ways that it won't work, right? And, uh, and so I just think that's a classic story of, of perseverance and testing and learning and making incremental changes to see if you can make your, your product a reality. And it's funny, you know, it's a little known fact, but Thomas Edison started his career as an inventor in Boston, not mm-hmm. New Jersey. So uh, when he was in Boston, he worked in the same incubator building. They, they didn't call them incubators or co-working spaces back then. But there was an incubator building in downtown Boston that where people were thinking about what is the next wave of technology after the telegraph? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and one of the things they were thinking about was how do you make telegraph wires more efficient? How can they carry more messages? Uh, Alexander Graham Bell and Thomas Edison worked in this same incubator building in downtown Boston. And like you said, um, Edison had a lot of failures and he was working on um, inventions here in Boston that didn't quite pan out. One of them was a vote recorder that legislatures or governmental bodies would use to more accurately record votes. And apparently that was something that uh, politicians at the time just didn't want. And so mm-hmm. Edison had a falling out with his investors uh, and then relocated to New Jersey. And so that's, you know, eventually found some some success in New Jersey with the light bulb and tying it into Disney. You know, he was he was um, one of the first people who invented uh, movie viewing machines. Yep. Um the, initially, it was not a projector. It was the kinetoscope, this movie viewing machine that you would look into. And it was kind of a, you know, a personal movie viewing experience. Yeah, I mean, it, it, Edison was was definitely a giant. The interplay between Edison and Tesla and George Westinghouse has always been really interesting to me. And, and George Westinghouse, interestingly enough, was the one that I was going to say was my favorite. I actually worked at Westinghouse early in my career. Yeah. And the thing that I liked about him was the level of practicality that he applied uh, to to creating the business around what he had developed. He was obviously on the alternating current side of that debate between AC and DC back in the day. Uh, I think the thing that I really appreciated about the fact was he there was ego that drove most of these guys at that and most people that are that are highly creative he seemed to have the ability to get past his ego and to figure out how to work with people to move things forward. And I think that's an attribute that's not always the case in uh, highly creative folks. So George Westinghouse was, was going to be the one that I'd say was my favorite from that time frame for sure. Well, very good, Scott, let's hop in and talk a little bit about, uh, about you. I, I gave just a brief glimpse of, of who you are, but wanted to give you the opportunity to tell us a little bit more about you and about innovation leader. Well, thanks. I mean, you know, Innovation Leader really exists with, uh, you know, kind of for one key purpose. And that's that, you know, you guys have worked a lot in the startup 
innovation sector and helping grow small businesses into big businesses. And we kind of just felt, uh, you know, six or seven years ago that there was so much focus on the startup world and, you know, how do startups raise money? How do you find a co-founder? How do you hire talent? How do you potentially, you know, do a first distribution mm -hmm. deal with a bigger company? But nobody was focusing on the large companies, you know, the General Electric, Disney, Starbucks, Marriott, Boeing, you know, that scale of company and all of the innovation challenges that they have, you know, like once you get big and successful, how do you continue uh, innovating, experimenting, um, rolling out new products and services and kind of staying relevant uh, to consumers as their habits change, as everything gets more digital, uh, as we go into an, and hopefully out of a global pandemic. And so our focus is really data, research, case studies, online and offline events for people in those large companies who in some way are responsible for innovation. And that can be lots of different titles. You know, sometimes it's emerging technology, sometimes it's R&D, uh, it might be design or new product development, mm -hmm. um, but, but those are the people who are part of our community. So how did you yourself come to this line of work? And, and particularly uh, in innovation in general, innovation leaders specifically. I mean, I just have always liked writing about new stuff. And so, uh, you know, I went to journalism school here in Boston, um, had a really fun job at the Boston Globe in the early days of digital publishing, helping them figure out how they were going to get their content online. And then just um, really wanted to write and travel the world and go to interesting places. So I had a, you know, a long stretch where I was writing for Wired Magazine and Fast Company and The New York Times. Um, and just um, sort of traveling to uh, sometimes large companies, sometimes startups, um, you know, tracking Google and YouTube as those companies were getting started, um, going to visit bigger companies like General Motors and Volkswagen mm -hmm. and um, Disney, um, you know, both in California and in Florida. And I just have always been interested in the people and the processes and the mechanisms around getting new cutting edge stuff to happen. So did a lot of magazine writing and newspaper writing and um, then got together with two co-founders that I had uh, met in the mid 90s when we were all working at the Boston Globe as part of that digital publishing group. And we very much took the lean startup approach to innovation leader, you know, just a little bit of our own startup capital and set up a website and see if people would buy subscriptions to it. And, you know, it's grown from from there. And we're big believers in the lean startup methodology, whether you're a startup or whether you're a bigger company, you can definitely apply it. So um, it's interesting. We talk a lot about the intersection of innovation and leadership at our um, uh, in our in our company, Innovation Junkie. And, uh, you know, it's it's been my experience that not a lot of people are talking about what we bring, what we talk about, the three domains of number one, how to disrupt the status quo or, or how to challenge the status quo in the form of innovation. Number two, how to make that innovation stick in the form of, of long term organizational change or transformation. And number three, the leadership required to make all that happen. So when I came across uh, uh, several months ago or a couple of years ago, actually, Innovation Leader, uh, I was very pleased to see that you guys were, were bringing those two domains together. Talk a little bit about that and, and how that came to be. Well, it's, 
you know, it's really hard because I, you know, I think you guys must see this as you're, you're working with younger growing companies, you know, success is all about leadership and putting structures in place and putting ops in place so that you can do something effectively and make customers happy day in and day out. And then, you know, it's scaling that up. It's going to other states or it's going to other countries. Um, and so I do think that, you know, that, great leadership and vision and that operational muscle is so important to growing companies. And yet then you hit a point, you know, and sometimes it might be you have 500 employees or a thousand employees. Uh, definitely you've hit this point when you have 5,000 or 10,000 employees where you're so operationally focused that anything that might challenge the status quo, people look at really skeptically and there just mm -hmm. isn't enough time. There isn't enough resources um, and sometimes people actively argue against new ideas. Um, and it, and it's just because how do you, how do you find the time? You know, uh, people like Rita McGrath talk about this idea of creating an ambidextrous organization. Um, it's very hard. You know, you don't know a lot of people who have great, who have true ambidexterity, you know, and they can play tennis great with both hands or they can write mm. neatly with both hands. And I just think that organizations usually have a lot of that operational bias. You know, they're biased towards quality of service. Um, they're biased, you know, in the case of like an airline for safety and on-time uh, departures and on-time arrivals. And innovation really does, you know, the, the word disrupt doesn't get thrown around lightly, but it really can disrupt things in an organization that's, that's very operationally focused. So, so I think that, you know, the challenge, if you want to be more innovative, is like, how do you find the time and the resources and the people who can be part of that? Hey, folks, we'll be right back with the episode. But first, we want to tell you about a limited opportunity to take advantage of our strategic growth diagnostic. For a short time only, we're offering a free strategy call to see whether or not our unique diagnostic tool is right for you. Go to innovationjunkie.com backslash diagnostic to learn more. Yeah. Well, and the other I, thing too, for for... Sorry about that, Jeff. But for large businesses, particularly if they're publicly traded, they've got a quarterly incentive to make sure that they're hitting analyst expectations and that the stock price stays up and whatnot. And at most, they're talking. They're, there's incrementalism associated with what they're going to do. It's operational efficiency improvements. Uh, you know how how can you, in your experience, convince an organization to do something? that requires a long-term view, and that is invest in innovation and, and commit to people being able to take risk when they've got these quarterly incentives that all the senior executives are going to be tied to in some way or another. Well, I mean, you put your finger on really the, the key, um, you know, North Star that most senior leaders manage toward, and it is those quarterly results, quarterly sales numbers, um, you know, if they're senior enough that they're on the analyst call every quarter, you know, they know they have to, they want to have something positive to talk about. They want to have just enough new stuff to keep the analysts happy, but not too much new stuff that the analysts start asking questions about, hey, why are you investing so much in innovation? Um, and, and what are you under investing in because you're putting all this money into, you know, um, you know, whatever it may be, testing 10 new products or, you know, hiring 50 new chemists or scientists. Um, so I do think that um, there has to be 
uh, a way of creating urgency around innovation. And so sometimes that's pointing to what's happening in the startup world and how it potentially threatens you as an established player. Uh, sometimes it's highlighting what customers are doing or saying when they stop buying your product or start buying less of your product. Um, and sometimes it's really just, uh, you know, potentially looking at analyst reports or market research that points to big shifts in behaviors. Um, you know, are shopping malls ever going to come back? You know, and if if that sort of shopping mall retail location was a big part of your strategy in the past, you know, you better be doing a lot of things to figure out, um, you know, how you're going to be relevant to those customers uh, who might you know, never develop that habit in the first place or never return to that habit. And so I think you have to have like uh, the ability to paint a picture of things that all create what we call innovation urgency. Um, and and one of the things that I think creates innovation urgency in 2021 and is going to continue into 2022 is just the record amounts of venture capital funding that are flowing into the startup world. So we set records in 2020. We're going to set records in 2021 in terms of money that's flowing into startups that all want to just carve away a little piece of a large established company or a medium-sized established company's business. And so now they've got 50 million or a hundred million dollars in the tank to take you on and try to peel away some of your customers. And I think when you talk to a lot of medium-sized or large companies, they can have trouble finding a million or two $2 million for an initiative or finding one or two people that they can um, pull over to, to dedicate to something. And so that's something that I think you could look at as, as creating innovation urgency, right? How easy is it for a startup right now to go out and raise a million or $2 million, 10, really 10 or $20 million you see get, getting put into lots of startups around the U S and around the world. And here we are big established company and we can't scrape together a million or two between the couch cushions to develop an idea that we think is going to be really important in three years or five years. If you find yourself having trouble making that argument, boy, you know, you have problems and you don't have enough innovation urgency. Well, and it's, it's particularly important because the half life of publicly traded companies is shorter now than it ever has been. I mean, their tenure in the in the Dow Industrials is as short now as it ever has been. And, and I, that, that creative destruction that's happening is happening at kind of an accelerating rate to the peril of those large companies that can't figure this out. So I think your, your point is, is really compelling about that. And, and also, I mean, one example that everybody can relate to is what's happening in electric vehicles and how many mm -hmm. startups you have that are um, getting funded and getting to production. And, you know, they're, they don't have a huge product line. I mean, even Tesla does not have a vast line of products today. Rivian, which, um, you know, has been in the headlines recently, um, the electric truck company doesn't have a vast product line, but um you know, how long are people going to wait for the established car companies to come up with an all electric model that works for them? You know, are they going to wait another year, two years, three years? And so I think that big companies, a lot of times they're sitting on their heel, you know, they're, they're sitting on their behind a little bit um, as these startups peel away customers. And that's a really dangerous place to, 
to be. It becomes very hard to grow when you have these brands that are attracting your customers and making them happy. Um, and, you know, it, it makes it hard, you know, it's going to make it very hard for some of the established car companies once they start rolling out their own electric models to figure out, okay, now how do we market? Um, given that a lot of the early adopter and even some of the not so early adopter customers have just bought, you know, a vehicle from, you know, Tesla or Rivian or another one of the um, electric car makers. And speaking of uh, electric car makers, I saw an article this past weekend of Ford's model 1978 F100 uh, electric, totally electric vehicle that they've they've got out there. It's I mean it's obviously not to market, but it's uh, I think it was a response to Twitter Twitter followers saying please replicate the 1978 Ford F100 <laughs> in, a, in an electric model, and it looks exactly like the 1978 forward so yeah and i i've seen the i've seen the mustang the electric uh ford mustang out in the wild this summer mm -hmm. um and so ford is really trying to be a fast ford and gm are both trying to be really fast followers here yeah so we talked about um creating a, a culture of an innovation and an urgency of innovation i've also seen and and both jeff and i have worked in larger organizations as well is this tendency maybe it's not under the um, the innovation umbrella but it's this i have a great idea kind of thing and then we begin putting investment whether it's hard investment or soft investment in terms of people's time and effort and a little bit of money here only to look up six months down the road and realize that all of that effort was wasted because we really didn't think through the idea. We, we, we fell in love with that idea. We didn't really try to articulate the business problem we were trying to solve, validate that business problem, et cetera. Do you see that as well in your, in your work with companies from an innovation perspective? Yeah, I think a lot of times it's led by just excitement around a technology, mm -hmm. right? You know, it's like, hey, we're in financial services, so we should figure out how to do something with blockchain mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, we're in manufacturing and let's figure out how augmented reality can be used on the assembly line. And so it's it's technology led rather than opportunity or business problem led. And I do think that you need to have, you know, you need to have some kind of process and constraints for innovation activity, um, you know, that's that's based on experimentation. You know, we talked about the mm -hmm. lean startup methodology. Um, that's pretty good, right? In terms of saying, you know, we're going to build just enough of the product to put in front of some customers and see if they would place an order for it or actually put real cash on the barrel head to buy it. Um, but, you know, but as you point out, Jeff, you really do need to understand, you know, what, you know, what is the business problem that we have that this yeah. idea is going to solve? Not just is there a senior executive running around who got excited about us having an Alexa skill and we don't know, you know, what are the metrics for success? <laughs> you know, yeah. what is yeah. this going to do for our customers? But we just know that there's an SVP who thinks our company needs to have an Alexa skill ASAP. Yeah. If they can be more beholden to doing unbiased customer discovery where they're asking good open-ended questions. You know, you think about it, if you're in a product company in particular, you're going to go into any of those kinds of conversations with biases around what you hope they will say, right? You're hoping that you can design your survey instrument, whether they say this or not, in a way that validates your own thinking. Whereas we give advice to large and small customers, be a consultant to your own idea. 
in the to the extent that you try to kill it as early as possible in the process. And if it survives, it's kind of a venture studio model, follows lean canvas, then you know you've got something if it survives that rigorous customer discovery. Yeah, and I do think one of the things that you may find is tough for clients that you work with is just large companies are used to honing and developing something and coming up with the packaging and coming up with the slogan and you know spending a year or 18 months of that before they really put it in front of a customer in a are you going to buy this sort of way yeah. and focus groups are not are you going to buy this right focus groups yeah. are do you like the pink package or do you like the purple package right um and and so i do think getting that customer validation and there are lots of people who are really smart about this you know steve blank being one mm -hmm. uh, you know eric reese obviously alex osterwalder that if you can compress that time, you know, figure out, as you said, you know, what are the what are the potential points of failure really early on and, you know, starting to get that customer input and build some customer momentum really early on. Um, it's you know, it saves you a lot of money and it saves you a lot of time. And I think that is what helps, you know, what can help large organizations become more agile. Well, let's talk about what's on the horizon for Innovation Leader. Yeah, we always feel like there's lots of interesting questions for us to explore. And some of the ways we do that are by serving people or by doing um, interviews with people at large companies. We were just talking last week to the chief uh, technology and digital officer at Best Buy, who, mm -hmm. as you might imagine, in Q4 is a pretty busy person, uh, <laughs> given this is their most important quarter of the year. Um, and so some of what we're working on is um, a report around emerging technologies and how do companies sort through the noise and filter through the noise and figure out which technologies are going to solve a business problem for them and, and work with those efficiently. We're looking at how R&D, traditional R&D organizations are evolving, um, you know, and, and what some of the ways are that they're opening up to you know, what some people call open innovation or just ideas from outside the company. Um, and we're also, you know, we, we've done some small in-person events in the second half of 2021. We really like getting people together in person because these peer groups just have really great exchanges. We were doing one last week in New York City um, with a really interesting group of people, um, you know, from big brands and 2022, hopefully it's going to be easier and safer for people to travel and mm -hmm. come to larger events. And so we're planning, uh, we do a conference called impact, uh, that we're planning for May, 2022. That'll be in New York city. Very good. Uh, just, I happen to think as, as you were talking through this, do you do any work with higher education institutions? I think one of the single greatest industries that is ripe for innovation is, the entire education system in the United States, but particularly higher education where costs have grown, student debt has, has, uh, um, ballooned and the, you know, and the preparation for a workforce to meet the economic demands is sometimes questioned. Yeah, those are all really good points. We do have, you know, we occasionally do interview people in the world of higher ed. Um, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about a, a podcast interview we did, uh, last year, I think, with the president of Southern New Hampshire University, which has been really, um, you know, one of the leaders in experimenting with 
online degree programs and also on campus mm -hmm. programs that can help reduce the cost of tuition and kind of make um, make college degrees more accessible. And so, yeah, we do have, you know, we do have members in higher ed. We have members in nonprofit and government, not just private sector innovation. And, uh, you know, I, I think higher ed is just higher ed and the utility sector um, and probably the, you know, defense contracting sector. There are just some industries that are so insulated uh, that it's, uh, healthcare would be another one. You know, they're mm -hmm. so insulated, they're so regulated. There is very little competition. Um, if you think about your choices, right, for who you know who you're going to get water service from, or natural gas service, or electricity at your house, you know, a lot of yeah. a lot of companies have that sort of utility mindset where you have to uh, you have to buy from us. And I do think a lot of higher ed is, you know feels that it's like, you know, they feel that, oh, our brand or our position in this particular region is so strong that um, they're not doing enough to bring the cost down and make yeah. higher ed accessible to more people. And you started to see it, right? Like there are colleges that are being forced to merge or, or being forced to close because suddenly, yeah. um, you know, their, their customers just go away. And so that you know, I think that is a cliff that for some of the smaller schools that don't have as big of an endowment and don't have state support, um, yeah. you know, they're, they're definitely feeling some innovation urgency. Well, and Clayton Christensen before his death, a couple of years before his death, predicted that uh, 50 percent of higher education institutions would either close, go bankrupt or shutter their doors within 15 years. You know, number one, because the business model is broken. Uh, and, and number two, because uh, online uh, uh, universities like Western Governors in Southern New Hampshire and what have you, they're, they're doing things innovatively to bring the cost down and to, to, to ensure quality. And then number three, this cliff of 18-year-olds that's going to occur between 24 and 26, where the, the number of 18-year-olds of, of is just going to dry up. And you can't manufacture 18-year-olds in the next three years. <laughs> we had to do that a long time ago, right? So. No, no. I mean, but you can, you know, you could look at, right, people in the workforce that might want right. to increase their education right. and get a better paying job. And and so I do think a lot of the online schools mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and to some extent community colleges, that's where they've yeah. always played, played well. I also think community colleges, they don't get a lot of respect in most parts of the country, but they are much better at talking to local employers and understanding you know, what are the skill sets that these employers are hiring for today and how can we build curriculum around those needs? Whereas, you know, if I went across the river to Harvard or MIT and said like, hey, so are you talking to employers about who they want to yeah. hire? Like, you know, you might get kicked out of the president's office for asking. Well, sort of yeah, question. I believe that that uh, two-year institutions are the missing link to workforce development in our country. And I believe you know, most four-year institutions don't see themselves as a piece of the workforce development puzzle. Um, and and that's that's a problem. No, I think it's true. And like, you have to look for these weird, bizarre leading indicators sometimes, like things that feel like they're an anecdote at first, but then they become a trend and then they become the mainstream. And I remember like three or four years ago, I went to um, a conference here in Boston and one of the other speakers was this kid who was at Berkeley College of Music, which is one of the, you know, the great music schools, um, you know, that launches a lot of professional 
uh, <clears throat> pop musicians and jazz rock musicians. It's not a school for classical musicians. And this kid had grown up in India and he had learned how to play five or six different instruments by watching YouTube videos. And so if you can get into like one of the country's top music schools by watching YouTube videos for free on the internet, like that is a really yeah. interesting signal of disruption. It is. Um, you know, for, uh, you know, for music education, for sure. Well, they, the arbitrage that the large institutions counted on, the fact that they had control and you had to come to them, yeah. is eroding more and more. The accessibility yeah. is there for everyone. And, you know, we see the same thing happening in currency, right? With cryptocurrencies and whatnot. The arbitrage, the control that the central banking institutions had, the financial institutions had, is being eroded. And there's going to be some good things that come out of that in that these are sectors that have not had any competition mm -hmm. based on duopoly, oligopoly or monopoly power that they had. And it's I think it's a, I think that adversity that they're facing is a good forcing function to get them to either think about how to be more innovative or to plan to go out of business. They really don't have a lot of other choices. Yeah, I think it's true. And you do see some examples. You know, I was talking with some folks at Fidelity Investments here in Boston that, you know, that are looking at crypto as an asset class that they are going, they are already helping people, um, you know, transition some of their holdings into Bitcoin now as kind of, I think they're doing Bitcoin and maybe talking about doing Ethereum, but not doing Ethereum yet. Um, and so, yeah, I think all kinds of financial institutions are going to have to figure out you know, what is the role that, um, you know, that crypto is going to play for us or, yeah, or they're going to find themselves battling it, you know, to go back to, to Walt Disney, um, as an example, he, he really looked at when television came along, he said, oh, this is a great channel. We're going to make content for it. And, oh, and it's also going to be used for me to promote my new theme park that I built in Anaheim. And at that point, all the other movie studios were looking at television as a threat and trying to figure out how to keep their top stars off of television shows mm -hmm. so that you would have to pay to go see them in the movie theater. And so I, I think it's always interesting. It does kind of sort who the smarter large companies are when they see something like crypto and they say, okay, this is going to be important. You know, how does this fit into our business as opposed to just writing it off as a threat or pointing out all of its weaknesses and, you know, and trying to stonewall against it. Well, Scott, it has been a pleasure having you with us today. Tell, tell our listeners where they can find you an innovation leader. Well, we're uh, on Twitter at InnoLead and the website is innovationleader.com. And we also have a podcast called Innovation Answered that is on all of uh, your favorite podcasting platforms. But I have to say, this was really great. It was such a wide-ranging interview. And so I, I um, take my hat off to you guys for really coming so well-prepared with interesting questions. Well, we appreciate you for joining us. It's been Scott Kirshner, CEO and co-founder of Innovation Leader, a Boston-based media and events company. Uh, we appreciate you for being with us and, and hope to cross paths again in the, uh, in the near future. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Great Thanks to talk with on. you. Yep. Thank you all for joining another episode of the Innovation Junkies podcast. Talk to you soon. Hey, folks, this is Jeff Amrine. We want to thank you for tuning in. We sincerely appreciate your time. If you're enjoying the Innovation Junkies podcast, please do us a huge favor. Click the subscribe button right now 
please leave us a review. It would mean the world to both of us. And don't forget to share us on social media.